I'm sure you've all heard of the movie Hidden Figures, the story of three NASA pioneers who didn't get the recognition until very recently. Well, today we're going to tell the story of why that is that these scientists, and many scientists like them, were unrepresented. Hi, I'm Cynthia. And I'm Clara. And you're listening to... <laughs> Voices. <laughs> Voices. 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 Voices on CornellRadio.com. Thank you for talking to me, um, Mr. August or Dr. August, I'm not sure. Uh, Dr. August. Dr. Avery August is a professor in veterinary medicine at Cornell University. This is him describing his class, Hidden Voices in Science. And then, of course, later on in the year, the, the movie Hidden Figures came out, um, which, which is sort of interesting. Yes. They let women do some things at NASA, Mr. Johnson. And it's not because we wear skirts. It's because we wear glasses. So you actually came up with the concept of this class before the movie came out. Yeah, I, I didn't know about that movie until, you know, when it came out in the fall. Um, but the course had already been developed and been approved, and, and, you know, I already sort of had an idea of what I was going to do with it. So it was just fortuitous that, you know, that, that we, we both used the, the, the term hidden. Yeah, that's very fortuitous. In fact, that's quite coincidental. Would you care to explain why do you think it's essential that we discuss and share with others the important work of these hidden voices and hidden figures right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just in general, um, I, I, I think, you know, we, when, when, when you ask, you know, first grade, you know, middle schoolers, uh, uh, even high schoolers, or even the general public, what their, um, what their view of a scientist uh, is, um, you know, they sort of had the stereotypical view that you see in cartoons. A popular example would be Rick from the cartoon series Rick and Morty. I put a spatially tessellated void inside a modified temporal field until a planet developed intelligent life. Um, working, you know, paring down a microscope. And, and yeah, there are some, there are very good scientists who fit that, that mold, but there are many scientists who don't fit that mold. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and these are people who have made really, really significant contributions to, to science and, and the way we live and the things that we do. And so I, I really want people to sort of have a, a much broader appreciation for who we are as scientists. When I asked Dr. August about the scientists he mentions in his class, he mentioned the name of one particular scientist who was a woman and who studied at Cornell University and won the Nobel Prize. There have been about six or seven women who've won Nobel Prizes, including Barbara McClintock. Barbara McClintock was inventing the field of cytogenetics, the study of the structure and function of chromosomes. Uh, you know, a Cornell grad who did some of her work here and, and, and was really, really prominent in the field of genetics and basically discovered a new field, of, a new subfield of genetics. She was the first to prove that genes were physically located on chromosomes. She did that by being the first to also show that chromosomes swap bits of genetic information by crossing over when sex cells are formed. When she was doing it, wasn't really appreciated. She couldn't get a job. Um, but um, eventually, you know, she, she was, it was recognized that what she was doing was so fundamental that she ended up getting a Nobel Prize for it. And she, 
she didn't share the Nobel Prize with anyone, which is, again, quite rare. So in 1983, 35 years after she published her first paper on transposition, Barbara McClintock was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for her discovery of mobile genetic elements. And she remains the only woman to receive an unshared Nobel Prize in that category. And then the other thing that's sort of rare for her was that she did all of her work in using corn. She studied maize corn, corn genetics. And uh, she actually got the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine because what she, the, the concept that she discovered was so fundamental for all of biology that, that it, was, it was such an important uh, finding. Being a Cornell student myself, I was curious to hear why I hadn't heard of Barbara McClintock and her work. Even though I had heard of the recent discovery of the LED light bulb and the physicist who won the Nobel Prize for discovering that. I mean, I, I think really it comes down to what I was saying earlier, which is they don't fit the mold of what we think about as a scientist. And so when people think about scientists, I mean, even well-meaning people, uh, they're not thinking of women. And, and many of these women uh, live the times where, you know, they it was difficult for them to get into graduate school to get their PhDs, and, you know, even after they get their PhDs or even in graduate school. They were discouraged, you know, because they were expected to go out sort of, you know, find a husband and, and, and start a family, and, you know, they weren't supposed to be in science. And so a lot of them struggled, I mean, a, a huge struggle to, to try to just practice their craft. Um, and so, you know, they, 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 um, the news media and, and you know, what's been written up about some of these discoveries um, don't always um, get to these people because they're not, they're not thought of as the first, you know, when you think about a scientist, as I said, the first people you think about is the white male. And so when you, when you want to go interview someone, you think about, okay, who are the white males that I know who are scientists? You don't think about who are the women that I know who are scientists. Perhaps you've considered the idea of working for a chemical company. Perhaps, like some mechanical engineers, you have wondered what a chemical company wants with men of your training. After hearing his response, I wanted to see if there was a correlation between the number of minority scientists out there and why very few people of these minorities choose to pursue a career in science. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it, it, it's not just a guess. It, I mean, this has actually been, been tested in studies where, um, you know, women and underrepresented minorities are less likely to do science because they don't see role models that say, you can do science. If, if, if the popular vision of what a scientist is is not what you look like, then you don't think you can do it. So, so this, these were really difficult times. Um, that these people worked on. So it's not even like today where, you know, you have a young person coming up and, and looking to see, you know, who are my role models in the field and being discouraged. This is actually someone who was, was actually being discouraged by, by the situation and, and, the, and the, the environment and the cultural uh, situation at the time. So, so it's, it's really important for people to see that there are people who have been very successful as scientists who are women and underrepresented so that they can have role models that they can, they can model you know, their, their careers on. Speaking of role models, I also got to interview Esther Selk. My name is Esther Selk. Claire's former teacher who taught at the girls' middle school in Palo Alto, California. Although she has worn many other hats, such as... Drama teacher, alumni affairs director, part-time choreographer, director for community theater, and a dance teacher at a local dance studio. She explains the significance of role models to girls in an all-girls middle school. We've done different things over the years, but one thing that has been consistent and one thing that I believe in deeply in all aspects of my life is role modeling. So 
if you're surrounded by girls specifically in a math class and only girls are raising their hands and girls are the ones who are the smartest in the class who understand these the most deep, things the most deeply and are vocal about their knowledge and also girls are the ones who are listening, you're surrounded and know that, that girls can fill every niche. When you're in an all-girls environment, girls fill every niche, whatever those niches are. And so as a math teacher who's a woman, I, I am modeling the behavior both academically and also how I treat people, like both. Like they go hand in hand. The way I treat other humans is always on display, how I treat students, how I treat my peers as my teaching peers. Knowing very well the disparity of women in STEM, Esther Selk goes to talk about how the girls' middle school combats the stereotypes and uh, tries to instill a love of learning of science, technology, and math in the girls that go to the school, whether it be computer science. We were the first all-girls middle school to require computer science um, as a core piece of our curriculum all three years. There's no choice. By the end of eighth grade, every single student at our school has learned how to program in a computer language, whether it be one year it was Java, right Java, right now it's Python. She goes on to explain why it is that these requirements are important. Requiring without making it like, oh, if you're really good at math, you can try this. No, everyone does it. Everyone tries it. Everyone goes for it. And if you don't like it, fine. You don't have to pursue it, but you're going to do it for these three years. And that's a really powerful way of, of requiring... Knowing that she had taught co-ed schools beforehand, I wanted to know what differences she spotted between teaching an all-girls middle school versus teaching a co-ed middle school. I had a very specific thing happen to me. Uh, I want to say it was my fourth year teaching, and I had some dissections or some, it was definitely labs that had a lot of stuff and supplies. And I started to notice that when I had groups of two boys, two boys and two girls in a group, or even three girls and one boy only, the second I passed out the materials or the equipment, the boys would take all the stuff and mess with it and do their thing, even if they were doing it incorrectly, and the girls immediately stepped out of it, stopped engaging, and wouldn't learn from it. So I took it upon myself to make single-gender groups within my classroom. And I started having groups of boys all together in their science groups and groups of girls. And the difference in how they interacted with both each other, the instructions, and the physical materials was tangible. They, I would pass out the stuff and the girls would decide who was going to read the instructions out loud and then they would do it and then they would talk about how they were going to approach it. And engage with the material completely. And the boys still did their boy thing. It didn't bother the boys whether they were girls in the group or not. But when the girls had even one boy in it, they would step away from the learning. They would step away from the science. They would step away from engaging with the lab and the materials. I soon learned from Esther herself that this reaction to behaving differently in front of boys is called posturing. 
and it happens every day for women in front of men. I discuss this with Clara to give more insight. I would hate for my daughter to feel as if she needed to act a certain way for a boy because that's what social norms dictate. I mean, there's probably other factors at play, like... Yeah, like... Oh, part of GMS is, like, math. they take people from, like, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and, like, I just watched the alumni... They have an alumni breakfast, or a scholarship breakfast every year. The alumni was kind of talking about, like, she didn't really realize what um, unequal opportunity was until she got to high school, and she realized that the reason why it was so hard for her was because she never got the opportunity to go to like a better elementary school or like preschool where the kids are like, it's like well-funded. Cause that's one thing, like if you come from somewhere where your school is not as well-funded as another place, then you don't have the same quality of teaching and like opportunities. And like, that's a very long-winded way of me trying to say that people might raise their hand. There's, there's like the girl boy thing, like, oh, I feel like a, I'm not a boy, so I shouldn't raise my hand or whatever. But then there's also like the, oh, I'm like this race and that's not what I do or something. So there seem to be a lot of factors contributing why there aren't that many women in STEM. I mean, as Clara suggested, there are also the factors of socioeconomic levels and race. And as Esther Salk suggested and Dr. Avery suggested, there's also the considerations of the lack of role models. But then I realized that there was one resource that I hadn't actually tapped that was available to me all along, myself. I am in the College of Engineering. I am trying to pursue a computer science degree and currently, there are some times where I just wonder whether or not I should just give up and go into InfoSci, which is, in my opinion, an easier major. And no matter how many women Ada Lovelaces there are in the world, I don't know whether or not that would be the reason why I would continue. But the only thing preventing me from discontinuing my studies would be, just like the study of computer science itself, Every single time I accomplish something, I look back on it and think, how did I do that? And that happens time after time after time, which gives me the hope that maybe the next assignment will just be the same thing. I'll be able to accomplish it, even though I'll have no idea how. 